Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. So welcome to this week's podcast episode of the Insider Outsider Podcast. We have a great guest this week, Rania Washington. Rania is the Vice President of Global Diversity and Inclusion for Lockheed Martin Corporation. In this role, Rania is responsible for the workforce engagement and compliance strategy for the company's roughly 100,000 employees worldwide. And you've been there over 22 years now, right, Rania? Yes. Actually, over this April would have been 26 years. Awesome. I'm reading an old bio then, looks like. So thank you so much for coming. (laughs) (laughs) I know you and I earlier talked about me telling some of the beginning stories since I was there back then. What I remember was we started back in 2007, and you had some LM voice data, some of your surveys that said white men were feeling disconnected from diversity, didn't feel like it was involving them, felt like they were going to be left behind. And so boldly, you all formed a committee from your diversity committee, the Executive Diversity Council Subcommittee on White Male Involvement. And then like a really serious data collection company, you did focus groups. I remember it was like 65 focus groups across the whole culture. Was that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. And you had a lot of powerful data that reflected a lot of what we've seen in different corporations. It's similar to white men don't feel part of this. They feel disconnected. They feel sometimes frustrated or angry. And so you piloted one of our white men's caucuses, the three and a half day learning lab for some of your high potentials. And then you did that probably about four or five more times with more groups of VPs and directors and then a mixed race gender lab. So you went full on. Not everybody starts with taking a whole internal group and giving them a three-day deep dive. And then I remember the most amazing thing that I've never seen another company do, Rania, which was you invited all those leaders, which was almost 60 or so leaders, to a day and a half strategic planning session where they got together and said, what do we do now knowing what we know next? And that's when you all made your commitment to your CEO and others, and the proposal to have every VP back then go through this kind of intense learning lab. Anything else you want to add to that? What else do you remember from that going forward? I think you nailed it, Michael. And and let me just say, number one, thank you for this opportunity to talk about what Lockheed Martin would consider groundbreaking as a company on this diversity and inclusion journey. The fact that we are engaging white men, and the fact that we can even say (laughs) white men in our culture is due to the partnership that our organizations have had over, to your point, the over 13 to 15 years. I think as I recall back on that time that you're, you're referring, we Lockheed Martin were really pushing diversity and inclusion was important to the company. And not only in our survey data, but just in, in comments and conversations we were hearing directly from white men saying, 
I don't see myself in the Lockheed Martin journey around DNI. You know, when we talk about different demographics or we talk about different characteristics around diversity, there was a whole contingency of our workforce that did not feel as though that conversation included them. And so it was back at that time that our chief diversity officer partnered with your organization to pilot, as you mentioned, a number of sessions where they were white male caucuses where white men got together and really talked about their perspective around diversity and inclusion. It brought out a variety of different emotions, learning, and I would say was impactful to a number of those folks that were in those pilots. You know, me being in the company, as we mentioned, for 26 years, I've gotten an opportunity to get to know many of those leaders that participated. And many of them to today will say, those sessions back in 2007, 2008 had a, an amazing impact on their ability to lead inclusively today in the workforce. What was also important that you were mentioning was that after the pilots and these leaders got in the room and said, what do we do? These leaders were the ones who went to our CEO, COO at the time, and our Executive Inclusion Council, it was called Executive Diversity Council at that time and said, this is a program that we think all executives should go through. And that was starting with our vice president community. So it was not HR. It was not the chief diversity officer. It was not a number of leaders that really hadn't had firsthand experience. It was the actual leaders that had participated who said very clearly to the CEO at the time, all of our VPs need to go through one of these sessions. And that's when it really kicked off for Lockheed Martin And we had influential leaders who made the right business case that has led us to the success that we see today from the program. Yeah, I think that's so amazing that business leaders owned it and owned the strategy and really sold it to each other, suggested it to each other. And that, I think, was an amazing thing that I think is rare in the D&I land where there's so much pressure on HR and D&I professionals to own initiatives. What has been amazing is that this whole notion of business leaders owning it, I would say that continues today, Michael, because the line item, this takes dollars, right? It takes a commitment by your senior leaders and a commitment by our business because we're taking vice presidents and now we're taking directors out of their day-to-day job and putting them in a room with other peers for three and a half days. And so when you think about the important work that we, Lockheed Martin, do for our nation and for all of our customers, being able to pull our leaders out of their very busy schedules is very tough. But the organization has made a commitment. And the reason we've made the commitment is just based on the feedback, the feedback we get from leaders after they've gone through either a full diversity partner session, which is the sessions that we consider to be white men who have been through a white male caucus, along with women and people of color. That's a session, three and a half days again, where there's great sharing, great learning, and they go on a journey together as a cohort, as well as we're hosting the white male caucus sessions as well. And so for Lockheed Martin to put that type of commitment into the learning of our our leaders, it speaks volumes speaks volumes to the point where when our leaders come back from these sessions, and this has been so pivotal, when our leaders come back from these sessions, they're more equipped and they feel that they have the language to really talk about what diversity really means 
and how to be an inclusive leader. Every quarter, we, Lockheed Martin, send out inclusion dialogue. And there are various topics that we're asking leaders to take to kind of think about diversity and how do you how do you create a trusting environment with your team? And so we give them various subjects and they can pick whichever subject they want to have a conversation with their team. And because of what we call Eloid, and I'm not sure if we define Eloid, but Eloid for Lockheed Martin is effective leadership of inclusive teams. But because of that program that leaders have gone to, they're more equipped to have courageous conversations with their employees. They feel as though they can be vulnerable. They're willing to create an environment of trust and openness and transparency with their employees. And many will say it's because of their experience, the experience they had in one of our Eloid sessions that we partnered with White Men's School Diversity Partners on. And so I think that that's been a major, major positive from our, our experience with Eloid. The other thing we're seeing is we're seeing white men use their privilege. It's taken me a few years before I can actually say that I've seen examples of that. But I've been in scenarios where a white male and other white men will be in a room and a leader or a female will say something and the other leaders in the room will kind of dismiss what she said. And I will see a white male who I know has been to an Eloit session will stand up and say, we can't ignore what was just put on the table by XYZ employee. Let's have a conversation about that. So they're using their privilege to help others. And because I'm the type of leader and person that I am, I immediately go up after the discussion and thank them for using their privilege. And so many have said it's because of what I learned through my experience. They don't always know the term Eloy, but they'll say I went to a three and a half day session and it was called white men, (laughs) a white male caucus. And they'll reference back to that and say, this is what I learned. And I want to I want to use my privilege where I see either an injustice or where I see someone feeling marginalized. Those are really powerful, rainy examples of that. I, I love hearing that. Warms my heart. And, you know, the other thing you're saying, you're not saying that white men feel beat up by being addressed, you know, because there's so many approaches to diversity around white men there where white men feel like they've been taught they're the problem in this This is more of an empowering approach. It's like your perspective of the world isn't wrong. It's just incomplete. What are you not seeing that women or people of color, others are engaging with? And I'm imagining you don't get much about white men feeling shamed or beat up. They feel more empowered. And actually, I think a lot of them feel appreciative of being having noticed and realized their blind spots. Well, I I 100% agree with that. I will say that when some of our leaders get the invite and it says White Men's Caucus, (laughs) there is a a second take that says, wait a minute, what did I do? Why am I being invited to a White Men's Caucus? You know, there there is that question. And in some regards, there's, there's fear. And then when they get there, when they get there and they start talking and it's really almost a sigh of relief that, no, this is about you you bringing who you are to the table. And let's talk about who you are. And then let's talk about how others may perceive you. And let's talk about ways in which you may have perceived other people. And there's a a full-on conversation that begins a learning journey. And that journey is not only learning from the facilitators, obviously the White Municipal Diversity Partners team, But it's also a learning journey amongst themselves. 
And I think what happens is there's a feeling like it's not necessarily that I, that this is all my fault, but it is a conversation around what can I do to help in any situation or any scenario where I may be able to help. And oh, by the way, I've been in those scenarios before, but I didn't realize that I had the ability to help or to just be more aware. And so, yeah, I would agree. It's not a session where especially white men walk away feeling as though they own any burdens of any other race or any other gender, but it is an opportunity to talk about how do we, how do we go through this journey together and how do I help? Mm. Yeah. And I think a lot of white men discover, wow, that the others can gain by this work and how I can use my privilege to intervene on whether it's microaggressions or just people not feeling, feeling like outsiders, but I think a white man discovered there's stuff in here for me too. I actually have been conforming to a culture that I didn't realize I had where I stay in my head, disconnect from my heart. I get so locked into listening to fix things. I don't really hear people because I'm debating them or fixing something and I'm not listening to connect. So I know you've, I think you've talked about getting actually some thank you notes from some spouses of some of these white men. I have. There's one that just always rings in my head. When I worked out of, it was another Lockheed Martin facility down in Georgia I was working and I was leading HR. And so I had the great privilege of identifying who would actually attend our our sessions and work with them when they came back from these sessions to put them on panels and, and give them some space to be able to share their learnings and encourage others. So in my role, I had the ability to talk with all kinds of folks, not just those that were Lockheed Martin, but spouses when needed. And I'll never forget, I got a phone call from a spouse and the employee had just gone to a white male's caucus, had to be about a month prior to the phone call. And and she was calling me really specifically around benefits. And we had a really good conversation around benefits. She was very complimentary of of Lockheed Martin and, and what we were providing to her and her family. And then at the end of the conversation, we we're just about to hang up. And she said, you know, my husband went to a session. He traveled for a session. She said, I can't even remember where he went or what he called it. But when he came back, she said he was different. And I said, different how? And was that, are you sure it was a Lockheed Martin event? She said, oh, yeah, it was Lockheed Martin. It was all work. She said, when he came back, I noticed that when I would talk, he'd actually listen. <laughs> and so we both chuckled and I said, tell me more. <laughs> and she said, he now seems to be more in tune with the things that are important to me. And with their daughters, they have two daughters. He's more in tune to when they travel, what time of day are they traveling? Are they arriving late? Being very mindful of being careful where they are. He's listening to our perspective. He doesn't want to seem dismissive. It felt as though he was leading in our household more with his heart than his head. And I said, oh, that must be our white male caucus <laughs> session that he went to. And she said, yeah, she said it was something like that. She said, I don't know if you offer this all the time, but can you go every year? And we chuckled. <laughs> and I said, well, maybe not every year. <laughs> but uh, she said it was so powerful. She saw the change in him almost immediately when he arrived home. And Michael, that's what we hear from a number of our employees is that this experience is opening their eyes to not just being in the workplace and leading inclusively in the workplace, 
but being more in tune to even their surroundings, their home environment, how they interact with people that they love, how do they interact with people in, in the mall and just realizing that people come from all different walks of life and putting on kind of the eyes of, I can walk in my shoes, but I can also walk in your shoes and treat you with grace and consideration accordingly. So it's, it's been just very positive all around for our leaders who have had this experience. Mm-hmm. I love hearing all that. And it's the, the stories are very impactful. That one you just shared. It's like, yeah, there's others, people of color, white women, others win and white men can win in this whole journey too. I mean, they can have profoundly different relationships. They take home and make them more effective leaders too. Do you, what about beyond stories? Do you have what else? What else do you have that is a any kind of a measure of the impact of Eloit on your culture, business culture? So earlier in our conversation, we were talking about our survey data, and we've since the survey back in two thousand seven, two thousand six timeframe that really started our conversation together. We still do an employee survey. And the great thing is we're able to cut that survey in a number of different different ways in order to give us some key indicators around the health of our workforce. And we cut that data based on an inclusion index as a trust index. And one of the things we found that was powerful for us as an organization was that when we cut the data based on leaders who had an Eloid experience, versus leaders who had not had an Eloid experience, we found that their individual scores were higher in trust and inclusion. And so very clearly we could see that if you're a leader and you've gone to an Eloid session, your perception and even maybe the environment you're creating is more positive around trust and inclusion. But when we took it one step further, we found that the employees that worked for a leader who had an Eloid experience, their scores were even higher in inclusion and trust in comparison to employees who worked for a leader who had not had an experience with Eloid. And so when we showed that data to our executive inclusion council here at Lockheed Martin, it was very clear that Eloid was having a very positive impact on the work environment. Now, that was a, it was a key, it was a strong metric something that, at least for, I know for our organization, being able to see metrics and how programs are impacting the work environment is extremely important. And so I don't get any argument over the funding for the program. What I get an argument over is I want more of my leaders to go through and I want them to go through even faster, right? So we have the opposite effect where, you know, leaders are saying by the end of XYZ year, I want all my leaders trained. And so I've tried to help them understand, you know, keep in mind, we're still pulling people out of the business. We want to make sure we do it at the right rhythm. And we want to make sure that where we can do some intact teams and having, um, being very smart around how we allocate the billets for, for the Eloy sessions is very important. And so we are now as an organization, almost at about 81% of our leaders have gone through some type of Eloy experience whether that's through a full three-and-a-half-day lab or a two-day summit. And so when we started the call, we were talking about executives, our VPs and our directors going through an Eloid experience, and now we're saying all leaders. 
And so we've gone down into the organization, down to your first line supervisor, going through an Eloid experience. It has been powerful, Michael. And the reason I can say that is I hear employees talk about my leader went to this session and they came back and they're different. They're listening. They're engaging with the team differently. They're hosting conversations to talk about diversity and inclusion, which in their mind are courageous conversations, right? Because some leaders don't have all the answers. But one of the things they learn in Eloid is you're not expected to have all the answers. You're expected to be vulnerable and be willing to start the conversation. We'll try to find the answers in the room. And if we don't have the answers in the room, we'll go out and get the answers for the next conversation. And so I think leaders are becoming more apt to, and I will tell you, it's increasing their own inclusion index as leaders. And so it's just had a very positive impact on the organization. I think the only negative is that we haven't been able to get them through fast enough. And so, you know, we're still working that. That's not your fault. That's on our side. But I think it's proved to us, Lockheed Martin, that we hit a gold mine, and it's really changing the way people think and the way they interact with one another in the workplace. I think that was reflected, too, a number of years back when you all won the Catalyst Award, which was, I also think, reflective of this part of this journey, particularly with the VPs, so many VPs and directors going through those labs and changing how they behave and stuff. But how have you engaged people of color and women into Eloit, including white women? Right. And before I go there, and I think this is also applicable, when we talk about the Catalyst Award, we won that in 2014. It was a major, major accomplishment for Lockheed Martin. And I think this ties to your question, but one of the one of the projects that we recognized very early on was that one of the changes that we found leaders making on their own was that they were realizing that in order to attract talent that may or may not look like them or attract women and people of color, that you had to have women and people of color in your interview process. And you have to have women and people of color on your slate. And I will tell you, the leaders were making those shifts on their own. And it was because of their conversations at an Eloy session. I had one leader who came back. I had gone through an Eloy session. It was like my third time going through. <laughs> but I'd gone through an Eloy session and we built a small cohort of us that wanted to just get back together and just talk about our learnings. And after three weeks from coming from a full diversity partners lab, we got together and I asked the team, I said, well, tell me what you've done different. And the first thing he said, he said, I was so excited to share this with the team. He said, but I was going through my normal rhythm. I had an opening on my team. I went through my normal rhythm to identify the leaders that would sit on the interview panel with me. And I had gotten my candidates and he said, I was probably two days out from when it was time for us to actually schedule the interviews. And he said, and I looked at the list of folks that I had on my interview slate, and he said, I'm a white male. Every last one of them looked like me. They probably had similar service. They had been the folks, they, they were his go-to team. They were the A-team for him that would come in and determine who was the right person for the job for him. He said it was at that moment he called each of them. He said, thank you so much. I appreciate you agreeing to participate on my panel, but I don't need you on this one. And he said, and he went out and he got a, a diverse panel representative of what talent he wants on his team. And he had, he had a person of color. He had two females on his team. 
And he said, only because he had had a conversation with this individual about her situation, he also brought in an employee with a disability. And so when he, he said, well, after he had finished the conversation with all the candidates, he said, I noticed the conversation to debrief the candidates were so different. And he said, from now on, that's how he's doing his interviews. And so that's a small example, but a monumental change, right? A monumental change that wasn't levied on the leader. No one called him up and said, change your panel. It was his own learning from being in an Eloy session that he walked away saying, I have to do things differently. I have to lead with inclusion in the forefront of my mind. So I have a number of leaders with those kinds of examples that's fostering and knocking down barriers for women and people of color. And I think that that has been extremely, extremely important. The other thing, I mentioned the Full Diversity Partners. That's a session where it's a, it's, a, it's a lab where we have five or six white men who have been through a white, white men's caucus, five or six of them in the room, and the rest are women and people of color. Those sessions have been invaluable. I mean, leaders are walking away saying, I have a greater appreciation greater understanding. I understand privilege a lot better. It's interesting, Michael, because those I've been to three of those and they have just they have just opened the door to having real conversations across lines and knocking down barriers to really support one another. The other reason I've gone to three of those is because you all won't let me come to the White Men's Caucus. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe it's because I'm an African-American female, Could be. but you won't let me come. <laughs> so I have right. to keep going to the full diversity partner session. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that I've heard you say, and, and I've seen others say is, gosh, you know, all of us have work to do around our partnerships with each other. It's not just about the white men needing the work. It's like, wow, we all carry assumptions that get in our way of partnerships with each other. And that's a powerful learning for everybody, even in the two-day summits as well around that. Yeah, I was also going to say that in the sessions where we have women and people of color and white men together, there's a learning for each of those three groups. And what's interesting is it's different for each group, right? Because I would say that white men are, are hearing, you know, they're hearing some of the the kind of raw <laughs> real direct conversation that may come from a person of color who's had a, maybe a different experience and maybe even a different walk of life than a white male. And being able to share that in an environment that's safe and to be able to share assumptions that people have and being able to really, you know, no one's speaking for the entire race, right? But you're speaking from your own experiences. And I think that that's helped with, with really knocking down barriers around assumptions. But what I also find in those sessions that white women come in with a very powerful voice, a voice that sometimes is protective of white men, but I also think it's a voice of really trying to help explain their journey in society as well. And it's amazing how all three of these groups, and you may not just have three groups because some folks may separate and say, no, I'm a different group because not only am I a person of color, but I'm a female person of color. And that brings about its own different characteristics, barriers, and really just a different set of experiences. And so I think that the way you all have designed it to have all of these, their own characteristics clash in these sessions 
and then talk about those clashing points and how you lead better when you walk out of those sessions, how you lead more inclusively and how do you think about the employees on your team because it's all about leading inclusive teams. How do you think about how you manage them? It's it's just powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way you you mentioned how we design those, I think one of the things, some people may not know, but it's very experiential. It's a way where head and heart both have to show up and engage. And we link diversity with leadership skills. This is all about growing critical leadership skills for the diversity partnerships. And we lean into tough conversations rather than away. You talked about clash points. You know, it's like, how can we take on the toughest conversations that people can actually identify and do it in a way that models the future, models how we want to be together. And so people get a visceral experience of what partnership actually feels like around conversations they never dreamed that they could have before. Agree. Totally agree. Well, what in the last, say, 10 minutes or so, what, what's your uh, sense of what where you're at now on this journey with Eloy? What's next in terms of what's important and... Yeah, there's two main focus areas that we have right now with Eloid. Again, I mentioned that we are almost at the end of our journey of having all of our leaders having had some type of Eloid experience. What we're finding now, Michael, is we have to come up with some kind of solution for our individual contributors, those that are not leaders. And the reason I say that is now I have a whole contingency of leaders that have a They have a dialogue and a language to really talk about this work. And they have employees that are saying, huh, what are you talking about? What does that mean? Head versus heart, right? And so we now need to spend some time thinking about how do we provide some type of experience for the rest of our workforce, what that looks like, how do we engage? Is it the same amount? You know, there's a number of questions that that are coming up that we are now exploring as a, as a company. The other area of focus is around our alumni. We call anyone who has participated in any type of Eloid experience, we call them alumni. And so we're really focused on how do we keep the same level of engagement? How do we keep the learning going? And more importantly, how do we keep the conversations going? Many of our business areas are engaging their leaders when they come back from their Eloid experience. Some of them engage, some of them don't. And so how do we make sure if you went to an Eloid session in in 2014, we want to make sure that in 2020, you still remember what the principles are, the characteristics of being an inclusive leader, and we want to continue your learning. It was some really in-depth learning that they they went through and how do we make sure that's still continuing today? And so we've been talking about having a courageous leaders conference. Unfortunately, with all this happening with the pandemic today, we are looking to maybe schedule that next year. And so we're really kind of thinking through how do we engage leaders? How do we keep the conversation going? And, you know, there's this word around accountability because now that you're aware, there's an expectation that you're operating accordingly based on your new learning. And so how do we also infuse accountability to ensure that leaders are using the tools and techniques that they learn and that they are engaging in courageous conversations with their workforce? And so so that's really where we're focused. If I were to add one more real quick, that third one would be our international population. 
most of our Eloid engagement has been uh, in the U.S. And for those that are outside of the U.S., there are specialized sessions that we want to think about engaging some of our leaders that are in the U.K. and Australia, et cetera. And so we're thinking about what that looks like on an international scale, working directly with you and your team, Michael. So, so I would say those are the three things that we're focused on as we continue this journey. Yeah, and I am excited about the international piece with a lot of other clients. We've done a lot of international work, and we use that framework that we brought back into the domestic programs called Insiders and Outsiders, thus the name of this podcast, the Insider Outsider Podcast. It's like globally every system has insiders and has outsiders. And that looking, whether it's in the UK, Australia, or even programs we've done in India and Singapore, it's like people can identify when you ask them, who are the insider groups? Who are the outsider groups? What's the role of insiders to engage other insiders instead of outsiders always have to being the ones that educate the insiders. And all of us have insider outsider dimensions, including personality introvert might be feel some people might feel like an outsider from that others you know from being maybe even in hr versus engineering or different functional groups and things so it's a fascinating and it's it's i also love what you said rainy about accountability i think that formal and informal accountability and how you know this is as much a peer intervention it's how do you get insiders to hold each other accountable to continue each other's awareness and intervene with each other so that traditional groups have been most impacted by diversity dynamics aren't the ones that have to hold people accountable, but insiders hold each other accountable too. That's right. That's right. So I want to ask the, this last question so in terms of for people listening to this podcast, maybe other DNI professionals, other chief diversity officers, other leaders out there. What advice do you have for companies starting out in this journey? And I, I want to just recognize that you said early in this podcast that white men get this invitation to white men's caucus and they have this reaction. It's like, wait a minute, white men, you've actually called that out. It's like, you know, it's been part of your journey. And I, I just want to acknowledge the courage of you, Rania, your predecessors, as well as the corporation as a whole and being willing to take the risk of people being confused about a, a topic that can induce fear or uncertainty, just calling out white men as a group and working your way through that, staying the course and being able to reap the benefits from being able to do that. And I don't know if that's part of this advice, but I'm just curious, what, what else do you want to share with listeners about advice for now that, now that you've been through this journey where you are? Yeah, I would say that that's probably number one is being willing to be bold, being courageous, and really allowing your organization to have an experience. And when I say organization, I mean those key folks that you you think would find value in, in such an experience. It's allowing them to really have the experience. I talked to a number of companies about Lockheed Martin's journey, why it's been important, how did we get started? How do you, because everyone asks, how did you get buy-in from the top, right? And whenever I'm, I'm asked that question, I always ask the question of who are your influential leaders in the organization? Who gets decisions? Who makes the decisions? Who gets the funding? How do you make those kind of decisions in your organization? And those are the folks that you want to start with. And when I say start, those are the folks that you want to maybe send them to a pilot session, 
host a pilot session at your organization. Certainly back in 2007, 2008, we did not have a plan that those who would attend would be the ones to influence our CEO. At that time, they attended a pilot. Who knew that those were the folks that would then influence our CEO? And now in 2020, almost 80%, over 80% of our leaders have gone through recession. We didn't know it was going to turn out that way. But what I do know today, based on that journey, is if it weren't for those six leaders that went into an executive diversity council meeting and said, we had an experience that we believe every other leader, every leader in Lockheed Martin should experience, we wouldn't be where we are. So find who those influential leaders are. Do host a pilot. I'm sure, Michael, your team would be willing to come and host a pilot and have an open conversation around why this work is important and the value and the potential outcome and return on investment. Once you hear that and you see the material, I think within your mind and within your leader's mind, you will find that it's at least worth having that discussion. You know, I also think that you want to start in a part of your organization where maybe there's an opportunity to improve how people work together. And we didn't start there, but I've heard of other companies really looking at, wow, we have an issue in one organization, thinking of how white municipal diversity partners could be a solution for you. And so maybe there's an issue, maybe there's something that's come about, or maybe something's brewing that you want to engage another organization on how they can help support you. Sometimes just a conversation will spark a relationship that turns into something that's very value-add for your leaders and for your team. And then my last piece of advice would be stay the course, stay the course, remind leaders. And I do this all the time. I remind them of what our data told them. I remind them of the anecdotal stories that we get. I remind them of the feedback, the written feedback that we get around the program. And then I remind them of why we're doing this. And I have so many situations that that I bring to the memory of my leaders to say, remember, we had this issue. And how an Eloid experience really helped to solve it. Let's not forget that. And so, you know, ensuring that your leaders understand the power of conversation, the power of really understanding how breaking down privilege and understanding the work environment, how that helps your team be more successful for your company. That's great. Those are wonderful pieces. And I think that early one, you know, we we find a lot sometimes where a DNI lead will want to bring us in and sponsor things pretty quickly without getting a couple white male influential leaders through a deep experience. And when they do that, without getting that sponsorship aligned, then their credibility is at stake because people are nervous about the focus on white men. But you're right on, I think, getting some early leaders into a deep dive experience and then let them speak to it makes a huge difference. It does. It really, really does. Well, always a pleasure. I'm just honored to have the chance to partner for so many years with you and Lockheed Martin, and I'm delighted that our partnership has made the impact it's had. Thank you so much for talking today, Rania. And thank you so much, Michael. I I appreciate you wanting to hear our story and allowing me the opportunity to really share what I think has just been an amazing journey for both of our organizations. So thank you for all that you've done. You bet. 
Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.